Never set my mind to something here for what I got. Whether it's plowing 20 acres in a day or dropping a tree within an inch of where I want it. I'm here today to get me a wife. I don't need to go back home empty-handed. Well, you're all pretty and fresh and young. I'll keep you in mind. But I ain't deciding on nothing until I look them all over. Welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Starring Jane Powell, Howard Keel, Russ Tamblin and Jeff Richards. Directed by Stanley Dornan. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast, where we look back at the seminal films of our youth and discuss the characters, the themes, and decide whether or not they hold up today. Excuse me while I break into song. Bless your beautiful hide, wherever you may be. We ain't reviewed it yet, but I'm willing to bet this will be interesting. It's Gally in Glasgow. <laughs> I couldn't give you the Just space, focus I'm so the sorry. Let the music be my guide. <laughs> it's Devlin in London. Oh, and it's uh, Patrick in London as well. Sorry, uh, boys, it's been a, quite a while since... I recommended this to you. Sorry it's uh, taken a while for us to meet and review it, but I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. This uh, this is a film I just I remember massively when I was a kid because my grandma loved it. And I think I've said to you guys before that my grandma really introduced me to musicals, and which is why I kind of like them now, and especially the golden era type musicals. So We've got Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which I've always remembered. Um, and there's probably the most impressive scene in the film has stayed with me my whole life. It involves a barn and a dance. Could be mistaken for a barn dance. And um, <laughs> <laughs> there's kind of, uh, what else? At the time, Calamity Jane, uh, Singing in the Rain. These films really stayed with me when I was young. And it was kind of... Every time I go and see my grandma, we'd sit down and we'd watch one of these. Thoroughly Modern Millie was another one, and we kind of rotated those three films over and over again. But this one, I think, is my favourite of the ones I've just mentioned. And I I think it's a riot and wanted to take us back a bit, you know, to the 50s. We've done, I don't think we've gone this far back yet, or you guys have. So, and all done a musical. I, I really want to see what Devlin thinks of a musical because I don't think it's his cup of tea, really. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, Devlin. Musicals, what are your thoughts? I should open up by saying uh, uh, I've not seen this film before. This was, this was a new one on me. This was a title I had heard, and that was it. I'd heard the title. I vaguely knew it was Westernish. I wasn't really super clear that it was a musical. When I was a kid, we didn't really have much... Like, cinema wasn't really a big thing. It was a thing that me and my brother found together, more so than than being influenced by parents or grandparents' generations. So I don't have a lot of the same touchstones that a lot of people do, and it's probably why my kind of formative film experiences are all mostly gross or, like, just disgusting <laughs> horror stuff or inappropriate action 
things. Like there was no, um, we weren't really a Disney house. It was a very male household. It was me, my dad and my brother kind of most of the time when I was a kid. So we just sort of left to our own devices. So um, I think I liked the idea of them. And then when I actually watched them, I realized that this is going to be a massive sweeping generalization and a dull thud. Um, I don't really understand what's that entertaining about people, uh, people dancing. And that is a bit of a killer for enjoying a film for which. Let me just pick up that lead balloon you just dropped there. I mean, there's, there's, you know, bits and pieces of certain types of dance. Or I'm not saying like the entire of dance is bullshit, but yeah i don't know um choreographed dance scenes on film genuinely don't do anything for me and they tend to be quite long and it just leaves me a lot of time to wonder why i'm there <laughs> okay Devlin, just quick question didn't did you go and see book of mormon the show uh i did yes there's examples of musicals that i do i actually uh, quite enjoyed um uh uh what's it called the ryan gosling extremely famous film from like two years ago Oh, La La Land. Yeah, La La Land. I really enjoyed La La Land. Although it was very nice. I think metatextual takes on on musicals or using the musical form for uh, for other things. I really loved that dance sequence in the middle of uh, The Shape of Water. I thought that was incredible. Yeah, what about you, Gally? I don't know. I guess I'm the, the lukewarm porridge out of the, out of the three. Um, <laughs> so I, I really like uh, how musicals are normally bright, brassy, and they're kind of infectiously sentimental which i always am a sucker for you know this guys um and i i have seen sing in the rain and i really really like sing in the rain and i always associate musicals with that era you know the 50s when it was really uh, gene kelly and fred astaire uh, you know true performance and, and 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 kind of star quality oozing um i've got a few favorites so west side story is is I think brilliant, and I love The Wizard of Oz as well. And and then I have seen uh, The Greatest Showman, and I'll probably talk about The Greatest Showman in a bit more detail as we go through this film because it's interesting to know how, or it's interesting to to sort of look at how musicals have evolved uh, over time. Mm-hmm. I'm not averse to this film at all, um, but it, but I, I will say that uh, musicals of this era, I'm not overly familiar with, like you are, Patrick. So hopefully. Yeah. Uh, as we go through the show, you'll be able to sort of inform us and educate us and maybe be able to give us some different perspectives. I, that we, I hope so too. I just enjoy them. So let's see how that goes. Stanley Donan. Dornan. Dornan. God damn it. Every time. <laughs> Should we start by just informing everyone that sadly and rather timely, he recently passed away. Yeah, 21st of February. It's really sad, and it's amazing because he was considered like the last great golden era uh, film director from Hollywood, and what he's, he's been really celebrated throughout his whole career for really changing the face of the musical at the time with his, well, this is one of the examples for his creativity, for his dance numbers, and how cinematic it all was. I suppose we can dedicate this episode in loving memory of Stanley Dornan. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God, I'm going to have to stop being such a total wanker then, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, we've said it now, Devlin. We, we've got a clean slate. We can go on now. It's fine. Uh, um, I, and I guess for those people that um, were unaware of him, he was 27 when he uh, when he made Seven Brides, which is crazy. Hmm. Uh, and at that point, he'd already made Singing in the Rain, which was in 1952, where he collaborated with 
with Gene Kelly. Yeah. It's probably his most revered film. One of the things that people attribute to him is the, the idea of taking the musical from a sort of stage setting and putting it into a realistic backdrop. And uh, that's, that's what he was, um, or certainly from the reading I've done. I don't know if that's true, Patrick, but from the yeah. reading I've done is that's what people attribute uh, yeah, yeah. him with is, is transitioning from stage or theater to a genuine cinematic experience. The show pieces is what he's all about, really, as well as creating mm-hmm. a, a great drama in the films. But I don't think we'd had much like this at the time. And it really, I don't know, really shook things up at the time to make it, uh, you know, it set the bar. Set the bar certainly mm-hmm. for musical numbers, for dance numbers, and mainly for choreography. And it, that is extremely cinematic and what everyone liked at the time. We'll uh, we'll get into the way that Dornan shoots the film uh, as we talk about some of the scenes mm-hmm. within this film, and we'll maybe do a bit of a comparison to sort of modern musicals. Um, guys, would you uh, would you like the plot to Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Go on, then. I would indeed. Here we go. In 1850, backwoodsman Adam Pontepe comes to town looking for a wife with a beautiful hide. He eventually comes upon the local tavern where he sees Millie chopping wood. After suitably being convinced of her worth by the quality of her cooking and her insistence on finishing the chores, he proposes and she accepts, despite them only knowing each other for a few hours. When they arrive at his cabin in the mountains, Millie is surprised to learn that Adam is the eldest of seven brothers living under the same roof. The brothers have been given Bible names alphabetically, but for you, the audience, you'll just come to know them from the primary colour of the shirts that they wear. The next morning, Millie decides to teach Adam and his brothers cleanliness and proper manners. They try out their newly acquired skills at a social gathering at a good old barn raising, yeehaw, where they meet six women. The girls take a fancy to the brothers as well. However, all of them already have suitors who provoke the brothers into an 1820 dance-off. Winter comes and the six younger brothers are pining for the girls they'd fallen in love with. Millie asks Adam to talk to them as she fears they will want to leave because of the missing girls. Adam reads his brothers the story of the Sabin women, taken from Plutarch's story of the Sabin women, which Millie has been reading. Inspired by the book, Adam and his brothers kidnap the six girls and an avalanche en route back to the farm means the townspeople can't pursue them. Millie, furious with Adam and his brothers, kicks them out of the house and to the barn where they can eat and sleep with the rest of the livestock, while the women stay in the house with her. Adam, angered by Millie's action, leaves for the trapping cabin, further up the mountain to spend the winter by himself. After Millie announces that she's going to have a baby, the women and the brothers come together as a family. Millie gives birth to a daughter in the spring, naming her Hannah as a continuum to the names in the alphabetical order. Adam returns home when the snow has cleared and the reconciles with Millie and meets his new daughter, finally understanding the errors in his ways. The townspeople arrive, intent on hanging the Pontepe brothers for the kidnapping. All is forgiven, a shotgun wedding ensues, and the brothers kiss their new wives as the credits roll. Seven brides for seven brothers. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most succinct plot synopsis you've ever given. So, so Patrick, did you waste your youth? <laughs> <laughs> where, where should we start, guys? We have to start at the beginning. We have to, because the opening scene is bonkers, and I love it. Adam waltzes <laughs> into town, and it is... <laughs> you know, 
You know, like if an actor, there's that joke, an actor says, what's my motivation? This is the best motivation that Howard Keel could have to start off the film. He's looking for a wife. I'm looking for a wife. <laughs> Any special brand? Well, yes. I'd like best a widow woman that ain't afraid to work. There's seven of us men, me and my six brothers. Place is like a pigsty and the food tastes worse. So I made up my mind. Next time I come into town to trade, I'm going to bring me back a wife. Well, that's a fine thing, I must say. Thinking you could come here and trade for a wife like she was a bag of meal. Oh, oh no, ma'am. I wouldn't say that, ma'am. Well, let me tell you, none of our gals is going to go off to bear country with you to cook and wash and slave for seven slummocky backwoodsmen. This, this opening scene where he waltzes into town and he goes into that store is, um, is mental, isn't it? It's... <laughs> But but I do think it sets the tone of the film straight up that there is a definite tongue-in-cheekness going on here. There's this bigger-than-life man, because Howard Keel is fucking massive. Especially when you see him, there's some shots when he's next to um, when uh, he's next to Jane Powell, who plays Millie, and the size difference is remarkable. But he just waltzes around, and he's eyeing up girls up and down, saying, what about her? What about her? And, it, you know, he's just alpha male wandering around and then <laughs> can't stop laughing because it is ridiculous can i make a confession the moment i saw him grinning with that big ginger <laughs> hair and that beard i honestly mate i wanted to give him a slap <laughs> not how it kill oh, i'm i'm so sorry but me too <laughs> i <laughs> i was watching this on on my uh, on my laptop I had the headphones on and I just made what can only be described as a Homer Simpson groan when he started singing. <laughs> Cause I, cause I, you didn't know it was a musical? Well, I did. I didn't know it was going to be like, they punch you in the face with music straight away, which is, at, at least they are putting it in there up front. It's not an insidious little, you know, it's not going to creep up on you with like, increasingly uh, 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 elaborate songs. It's like, no, straight away, this guy is going to sing and he's going to sing a booming voice for like a good five five or six minutes. Uh, oh, I will say he's a, fanta- he's a fantastic singer. I he's mean, got a great presence as well. Like, yeah. Screen presence is undoubtable. The song's very catchy as well, Blush for Beautiful Hide. I've been humming it ever since. Some of the lyrics are problematic. Uh, there's there's <laughs> no doubt about it. I know you're... Uh, going to suggest that it's Tongan it cheek, is. and but potentially, potentially it is, but uh, some might take it the wrong way. I, I'm going to, I'm going to read some of these lyrics just before you read them, because I, I, I know and I'm, I'm aware. But just, just to give a bit of context before we get into the politics, because I, I think this is going to probably um, dictate our talk tonight. That Adam is from a time up in the mountains where he lives with his six brothers on their own, not surrounded by women, not really accustomed to that kind of way of life. And so they are the kind of men who, uh, I suppose, part and parcel is their way of life. They don't really know respect or they don't know how to be with a woman or be around society that way. And so, you know, him going in balls as brass is maybe a macho thing to do with his brothers looking for a wife. And... So with the, what will undoubtedly, you're going to highlight now are kind of sexist um, lyrics in the song, I think he's setting up 
that he has to change throughout the film or something has to change and we need to bring in something, aka Millie, to help them uh, grow and change. I'll tell you what, let's take a listen at Bless Your Beautiful Hide <laughs> and some of those lyrics. Bless your beautiful hide, prepare to bend your knee and take that vow because I'm a telling you now you're the gal for me. Pretty and trim, but kind of slim. Heavenly eyes, but oh, that size. She's got to be right to be the bride for me. Bless your beautiful hide, wherever you may be. got a bit drunk on my birthday recently, and um, I was speaking to my grandma about this as well, telling her that we were going to review it. And... Uh, <laughs> we were at a bloody restaurant and I started belting this out. <laughs> and I was going through the lyrics with my grandma, like, what's the next line? What's the next line? Wherever it may be. And uh, yeah, mum and dad were a bit embarrassed in the restaurant because <laughs> I was genuinely giving it some. <laughs> that was great. What's your favourite lyric, Gally? Actual favourite or the one that was like, oh dear. No, give, me, uh, give me a. F- <laughs> uh, well, I suppose. The one you want to talk about then? I'm I'm not mega keen on oh I'd swap my gun and I'd swap my Ew. mule though whoever took it would be one big fool <laughs> or pay your way through cooking school <laughs> if you would say I do. <laughs> but the, then it goes on and it's just it just gets worse, doesn't it? Because it's pretty and trim but kind of slim. That's the line that pissed my mum off. But it's rip roaring and it's really catchy and it is again it's setting the tone for me but i i understand the problems that may be displayed through it but i'm trying mm. to think if there's any examples of this now where you know in modern filmmaking where we do understand and and it's more of a responsibility to have a narrative that addresses these uh these problems and attitudes and everything but I don't know. I'm not really good with lyrics um, of modern songs, and I'm only familiar with these because mm. we've, we've just watched it and studied it a bit. So I can't remember the band, but there was a song called "Work, Work, Work." It's about girls staying at home while the guy goes to work. Is this just a song or from a, an actual film? Yeah, no, it's from the song from a few years ago, and I remember thinking, "God, that's dead catchy." And then I listened to the lyrics and was like, "Holy shit!" Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the oh, Fifth Harmony. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what any of you are saying right now. <laughs> you mean you don't like R&B as well, don't you? What a shock. I worry about nothing. I am wearing a nada. I'm sitting pretty impatient, but I know you gotta put in them hours. I'ma make it harder. I'm sending pick up to picture. I'ma get you fired. I know you're always on the night shift, but I can't say. And that that song, the lyrics are severely problematic. So I guess there is a there's a modern equivalent, but there is. But um, I, I think I think you're right though that there's a. I suppose what we, what we're not doing here is reviewing music, and to, but just to say today's music. I mean, with freedom of speech or however they want to 
pass it. They can say whatever they want, and it's really. I thought I found modern music quite problematic because they're so accessible, and the lyrics are so um, risque, shall we say? This is this is normally my my rule of thumb: is the character sexist or is the film sexist? So if the if the film if I think the filmmakers are actually sexist, mm-hmm. then I'll have a real real yes, problem with absolutely. It. If a character if a character is sexist, it's a character within a film, and you would hope that within the narrative that character will then learn a lesson, which mm-hmm. Adam does at the end. Mm-hmm. You will get into it as to whether or not he actually faces any consequences for his actions, but he does have an arc of such, but I, I, it's not a uh, it's not a great curve. Uh, we'll call it that, shall we? Howard Keel is also in another favourite of mine that I mentioned called Calamity Jane. I don't know whether you saw that. Yeah. Or, I remember. I heard of it. I've not seen it. It's, it's Doris Day. It's my favourite Doris Day film. And of course, she was massive back then. And he plays Wild Bill Hickok in it. And quite frankly, there's a lot of similarities between the characters. So whether he's typecast or not, you know, I'd have to go back and look more into that. But again, of the time, because Clementine Jane is uh, 1953, it. it these films have really strong female leads and have, you know, have lessons throughout about women's place in the society then in the old West and men's place in society there as well. And about kind of coming together to, to an understanding and a means at the end. And just to give a, I wanted to give that example of another film there as well with, with Howard Keel, but you're absolutely right that, I don't think there's any malice in the filmmakers or the narrative at all. And it is the character. And for all the, um, the narrative issues that we'll, we'll bring up throughout the rest of the film. Yeah. I don't believe there's any ill will or ill intent. I don't, I don't find any of this film offensive at all. I might, um, I might find it a little baffling and out of, out of step and, uh, and and that just that happens when cultural artifacts age over time. The the context of the times they're made is completely lost or partially lost to a greater or lesser degree. And some things age out worse than others, um in some respects. Um but of course with a film like this, you know, it's 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 something that, that is enjoyed on a um not on a surface level, because that sounds really mean spirited, but I mean like it's it's enjoyed as a um uh like a confection in a good way like if if you enjoy these rousing kind of well choreographed beautiful dance numbers and and uh and this and this huge kind of like carnival atmosphere around the thing then then that's what you that's what you enjoy that's what you take from it I, nobody's going to watch this and and develop some sort of negative feelings towards women and go off and do six kidnappings. <laughs> and also the, the, the screenplay was, um, was from a, a very famous husband and wife uh, screenwriting duo, uh, Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich. Yes, there was. Um, so, I mean, you know, yes. we're not being, um, and I would imagine that I mean, Francis Goodrich sounded like she was an extremely powerful and, and, and well-educated and, and well-spoken and well-thought-of artistic professional in her time. So I'm sure she wasn't being railroaded into writing something horribly sexist. Um, I will say that as we keep going through the film, I'm, I'm not sure whether 
the the more satirical elements hit with me. I think maybe they kind of flew over my head a bit, but that's 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 based on your own personal reading. But yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything um, malicious or mean spirited in this film at all. We, we touched upon something like that. Though. Remember when we reviewed Monster Squad, and yeah, it was quite difficult to uh, assess. You know, with the uh, peeping on her, changing at her mm. window, or the kind of language that the bullies used, um, calling him a, f- mm-hmm. was it a fag or something? I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah, and, it was. And yeah. you know how things age, but it's, uh, similarly, I think Dublin and I especially agreed that we, we didn't think it was malicious in Monster Squad. It was just kind of humour of the time that mm-hmm. was... Um, it's it's kind of, you know, in, in retrospect, well. it's um, it's a little more hurtful but only you know yeah but yeah especially for the people for for whom that's 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 their everyday exactly. life is is getting yeah. this um i know galley you you would um yeah. we've spoken briefly while sort of talking about what we were going to uh mention today and um a lot of like family entertainment and and seemingly very wholesome entertainment has elements that are that are really uncomfortable and we're talking i mean if you want to talk about the, the the modern day renaissance of the musical, the Disney raiding their own vaults now to uh, to create live action and CGI remakes of their classic animated um, films, you're going to run up against things that in this day and age will not fly. Like the Jungle Book did not have the um, the the birds. Mm-hmm. Dumbo is not going to have a crow called Jim. Uh, I'll be interested to know if Aladdin. How Aladdin, and it only, and I'm not going to ask you this, Patrick, because obviously there'll be a conflict. But we yeah. just know how they handle the Arabic stereotypes that in the '92 animated version there are a plenty. So just you know, you're right. It's it's one of those things, isn't it? And we do this now. Yeah. I mean, this is what the show's about. We go back and reappraise these these films that are important to us that we have an emotional connection to. And I guess it's just our responsibility to say, maybe highlight yeah. something that is problematic yes, yeah. or could be interpreted as problematic. But you always have a really good point, Gally, which is what if someone who's 18 now, and this is the first time they've ever watched it, you know, now, now we're very aware of uh, what may cause offence. And um... I found it pretty shocking, to be honest. Like if, we, if we'd have recorded this episode like the day I watched it, I think I would have had a very different take on it, but that's just because I was having a sulk because I had to listen to people sing for two hours. <laughs> it's only when I, you know, took some time to put it in context. And, 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 you know. But yeah, no, I, there's, there's stuff later on in this film that that I found honestly uncomfortable to watch. The main thing is to not try and, uh, try your best, I guess, to not impose the standards of the day against a film that's 50 years old, 30 years old, 20 years old. However, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you just have to look at it as progress. You know, we've moved on and this this story now couldn't be told then. This character here wouldn't be in, in a film now. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's important to, to keep these things around as well. It's important to, to know what the standards were. You know, there's, there's no point. Um, like if you went back and, and edited out mm-hmm. all of the, for example, just random example all the um overt racism that happened within those beloved animated disney cartoons of the 40s and 50s which you could easily do if you went back and got rid of it you would be doing a disservice to the progress that has been made 
because you would be irre- well jungle but was the 60s yeah yeah so even even up until well and and beyond there's there's examples i would imagine well there is i mean i just said aladdin 1992 90, 92 so um hmm. but they, these things have to you know they, they still have to exist that you can't erase cultural memory but it's important to keep it in mind and and you know a film a film like this it, um i think it creates its own context i don't think it's um it's yeah it's not insidious it's right there in the actual plot of the entire film they kidnap some women that's the, that's the film <laughs> <laughs> so moving on from that i have got one 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 particular um composition that i did have a bit of a problem with once Adam and Millie decide they're going to get, they get married and they go back to the barn. Uh, sorry, go back to the farm. Um, Adam hasn't told Millie about the other brothers. And then when she meets, when she meets them, she's sort of shocked because she, she mentions on the way and in, in yeah. a lovely uh, little song, which by the way, Jane Powell, you know, what a voice. Yeah, fantastic. Um, but when, when they get to the, uh, when they get to the barn, um, all the brothers come in and they're quite, you know, they're loud, they're brash, they're dirty. Uh, they're, and you're right, you pointed out earlier, her size, she is tiny. Like, she is tiny. Uh, and there's a bit where, and I know this isn't um, Dornan's intention, yeah. but it's yeah, yeah, just yeah. what I got as a visual that I was like, ooh, this is a bit odd. They encircle her uh, in, the, in the cabin sort of front room. And Keel's standing, and she, she's almost, uh, she's almost like turning as they speak, as if it's you know, the, the, there's a threat there, there's a danger. And I know that isn't his intention, I, and I don't know whether that's just me looking at it as a first-time viewer, but I, I did have a bit of a problem with that composition of the way you framed it. The, the comparison I made, I don't know how you think about this, is is um, it's like a reverse, like a polarity of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, where I suppose there's kind of an element of that in here, her coming in and changing their lives. Whereas Snow White's tall, the dwarves are small, but she's more afraid of the smaller dwarves in that film. Whereas in this, she stands her ground. Uh, going back to that phrase, though she is small, she is mighty. And I, I know what you mean, that there's there, it can be perceived as a threat because she is so small and the men are, are well, they must be over six foot, these guys. But... She doesn't back down at all. No, no, no she doesn't. I think she's weighed them up immediately. She's understood the kind of false sense that she's been brought there. Maybe Adam did forget to tell her. Mm, he did. Because... <laughs> no, I don't, I, I'm, I'm trying to give an example because they do say like it was love at first sight kind of thing, which is why they got married. But yeah, I think you're right. He didn't forget it because <laughs> uh, he does tell her what her chores are after that. But um. I don't, I don't know what you think about that, like, comparison there. No, that... no. Uh, well, I think that comparison's really apt because uh, as, as, as the story goes along, and there's a... So after that, after that, um, that scene in the uh, living room, uh, you're right, Adam takes her to the uh, sort of the sitting area or kitchen and says, right, yeah, prepare the meal. She's on her own. Dornan does a pullback shot and she's left isolated. And I, and, and I wrote down from that moment on, this is the second time I watched it, it's Millie's story. Well, did she doesn't she literally roll up her sleeves and she does. Yeah, yeah. And and you, you're right. The comparison to Snow White and the one I had in mind was um, at that point was Wendy and the Lost Boys. Yes, perfect. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's she's essentially 
going to be the person that's going to going to change these brothers' lives. So I, I do I do see your point, and I I think it is unfair to just call this film wholeheartedly misogynistic because she does basically become the protagonist of the story, yeah, and everything absolutely. that happens going forward is as a result of her actions, whether it's with the brothers, whether it's with the girls, once they've been kidnapped, everything happens because of Millie. So yeah, she becomes almost a bit of a matriarch in the Pontypi yeah. family barn, I guess. Something that came up actually um, the other day when we were talking about um, audition, um, Gala, you mentioned that the the main plot for audition could be seen as um, a subversion of a bit of a romantic comedy mainstay, the idea of, a man gaining a woman by um, a lie, either big or small. Um, mm-hmm. Duplicitous means that, you know, that that becomes a, a, a sticking point for the relationship going forward. Whereas uh, this one, it just, yeah, opens right up with guy strolls into town, big strapping dude with a big strapping beard, leans on a cow <laughs> and, uh, and, tells, and tells, tells the young lady that she, She's coming home with him, and uh, yeah, and and then when she does, uh, then she's confronted with you know. I mean, I I must admit, I much like Gally, I found that uh, that one shot of all these seven mm-hmm. or six enormous, creepy, dirty, ginger bearded dudes <laughs> leering over her. as a man with a ginger beard. I I wouldn't, yeah. I didn't feel particularly well portrayed. <laughs> You're not that tall, Devlin. Don't worry. <laughs> no, absolutely not. When we get the song, which uh, there is the theme that they keep reminding us that they're in love, that especially Millie loving him, because the song is called When You're In Love, is a kind of lesson. And um, what they're, because songs in musicals are about emoting their, exp- um, what their feelings and tell us what they're thinking at the time. So, there is that that keeps going on that despite this, you know, she's kind of enchanted by him from the off. Yeah. I, I guess this is, um, this is a criticism, but, uh, but it is a musical as well. So there isn't normally within these films, um, things happen very quickly, normally mm-hmm. through the duration of a song, but I guess I never really buy Millie being in love with Adam, I guess it, it, it's because I really had an aversion to, to Adam. It's not Howard Keel. Um, yeah. It's that yeah, character yeah, yeah. really, I just couldn't get on board with him at all. So um, I kind of just wanted him to go away. So when he does later in the film, it was more than welcome mm. from my point of view. And, and actually the brothers obviously take, take stage anyway. And they become, you know, they become, like I said, they become like the lost boys. And, and that, that's the story that, that becomes interested in this mm-hmm. musical, not, not Adam. It is, is sort of arrogant, belligerent ways. But then the next day, Millie, again, setting the standard. It's quite funny seeing them shy away when she asks them to get the pyjamas to wash them up and they're uncomfortable. And it is, I think we start getting a bit more humour in the film. And at this point, Millie basically teaches them manners, teaches them etiquette. And then this is when we introduce the colour scheme for each brother, isn't it? They start wearing different coloured shirts. And just before they go into town, because why do they go into town? I think Millie needs to go into town to buy something, and they all get excited and say, oh, "I'm going to come." Oh, they all yeah, they all yeah, jump in the it. wagon, yeah, yeah. and then uh, they have a bit of a scrap because they can't speak to girls, and the and that's when Millie says, "You know, if you want to get uh, you want to get a girl to fall in love with you, you need to act like a gentleman," and and that's when they they pretty much from from that point on 
listen and abide to everything she says. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, uh, it's it's uh, well, it's the only one of the brothers I could keep track of throughout the film because it's uh, Russ Temblin from Twin Peaks, and the guy with the red shirt. Oh, I've forgotten his bloody. Is it Frank? You know, he's quite aggressive to start, but yeah, might be I, Frank. I only know him from the colours. Red, red and blue were always the ones I remembered the most when I was a kid as well. But um, one of them was uh, I. I had a quick look at the um cast because, as I say, Russ Temblin was the only guy I actually knew in this, but um. One dude was a, a professional baseball player. Oh, no way. Turned actor. Was, he, was that the good-looking rugged one who doesn't dance? Because I always assumed... I, I, yes. Whoever, whoever doesn't dance, it's the, that's, that's uh, the baseball okay. player. Okay, so yeah, yeah, he's the one who... He looks like a baseball player. So he? he'll be the uh, Benjamin or something, one of the oldest ones. Uh, You're right. We get into the barn race, is it called? Barn raising, yeah. Um, and I, uh, I, I clocked this one. It's I think it goes on... There's a little bit of an interim uh, with with the music where there's a little bit of talking and then they go into it again. So as a sequence, I think it's about nine minutes, maybe just oh, over. Spectacular. And yeah, I've got to say, what a tremendous achievement. And um, just the, the blend of choreography and music uh, with visual storytelling, uh, it's by far the best sequence in the, uh, in the entire yeah, film. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, it's incredible. It really is. And one of the things that I... I on second watch that I really did appreciate was the fact there's no singing. So it really is just music mm-hmm. and dance and Dawn and filming it and composing it in such these, these big wide. Uh, and we never, t- we didn't talk about the, um, the aspect ratio of the film, oh, yeah. but they, use, they shot it on oh, Cinescope, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. So it was One of the very the, uh, yeah. the first on Cinescope for MGM anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, right, he, right. he utilizes that frame and packs it. And uh, God, yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. It's I really, well, really did enjoy. Unfortunately, it. I my copy of this is is the one I watched when I was a kid, which is on VHS. But it's in a bloody four by three weird scanning, like panning copy. That's awful. Because oh, mm. what they 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 shot in uh, in both formats, yeah. didn't they? they? They shot in CinemaScope. And then they shot in Academy Ratio. or, or... I, I was a bit gutted. So I went and watched those sequences that I like the most, especially this, on YouTube, where you can see it in full, like the, the proper, how it's intended, aspect ratio, yeah. because you do lose, you, you lose the scope of it. The sets are, and the, the map, yeah. the, like map backdrops and everything, it, it's done really well. I do, like, I do love those background yeah, paintings. They're fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, of course, for the, and under high definition now, you might not get away with it as much. But for then, I buy it completely, and it's it's wonderful as a studio film to see to to create that kind of that picture. But this sequence, I there's I think a few of the brothers, a few of the actors are they're gymnastics, and they're all obviously dancers apart from your baseball player. Um, but the, like <laughs> he taps his, he's just tapping his thigh. I think he get, I think they all get a good go, but. The choreography, what it is, is um, it's some townsfolk and they're dressed kind of a bit smarter with their bolo ties and jackets and hats versus the brothers who are a bit more rough, still a little bit rough and ready in jeans and shirts. But they're fighting essentially, like you said, a 1950s dance off for these girls to see who they'd favor after them. It, it is wonderful. I like the. I like the moment where they're on the, you know, the the handshake section where it slows down, 
And you see how far back that guy goes on his toes. Like, mm-hmm. How limber he is. It's, it's awesome. I, I think this scene is fantastic. Um, and Gally used the same, but Devlin, from someone and a perspective for you that maybe doesn't buy into dancing, like you said, especially with this that might challenge you a bit more without any, any singing or spoken word, what did you take on this? Hmm. Once I knew where they were going with it, as much as it was very impressive uh, as a, a visual spectacle, yeah, it, it. I think this is this is maybe the kind of crux of the problem that I have with with a lot of of musicals, which is that um, when they when they're specifically using a musical or a dance number to um, expand on one piece or a, or a couple of pieces of, of specific storytelling and and they can hone in on it and they can heighten that and they can make that the focus of it i'm i'm along for the ride whereas when it's uh, a kind of a spectacle that's a celebration of the spectacle i think that sort of loses me okay i wasn't i mean i i you know i didn't have um uh, any issues with it and I, I i will say that i did you know it was it was uh like i say it was it was impressive. It was very impressively staged. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, just from the sort of technical perspective of, of keeping track of of each participant and and the the timing of the shots and the timing of the edits and uh, keeping it kind of moving forward. And um, they really, really did use, like you say, they really did use every inch of that frame left and right. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a, it's a kind of big, broad vista. It's well, this scene is essentially Dornan's masterpiece. This, this is one of the scenes that's always lauded whenever you speak about him, because I, I think this is where he's true creativity and uh, I suppose MGM's trust in him to how you know this is the action set piece of the time. This is this is what draws the audience in. Is is this set piece here? This dance number? This that wowed audiences? Um, was really really something to watch because the the marriage of the music the dance how it tells the story with the girls and the 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 townsfolk that don't like them and what did you say galley about eight minutes is that with the house the barn building and fight as well yeah and then it takes oh you know i did very much i did i did enjoy the um the, the house building fight. You're right. It, it rivals uh, anything he'd done on Singing in the Rain with Good Morning, mm, yeah, yeah. Singing in the Rain number. Um, it, it's it's fantastic. And I guess one of the uh, people that we should also credit is the choreographer, Michael Kidd, who um, I, I read initially turned down uh, the chance to choreograph, <laughs> to be the choreographer on the film because he didn't believe that Bax Woodman would be able to dance. So his... <laughs> yeah his method was to incorporate the dancing with physical labor that a backsman woodsman would do. So there's, you know, there's axes being thrown, they're uh, interacting with the props, you know, when they're doing the house building sequence Mm -hmm. and they're having that fight um, again, it's all, it's all visual storytelling. There's comedic moments, there's moments of awe. Well, there's moments of quite, brutality isn't there and the hammer on the head and on the hand oh, a killer man yeah. I mean, but you know <laughs> but michael kidd he he said he'd never he never asked a dancer to do anything he couldn't do himself which just shows i suppose in this his range and along with dawn and creating something it's just 
It is spectacular. How do you think this one fares to to modern musicals then, Patrick? I mean, you're so you're out of the three of us, you're the the bigger musical fan. Mm-hmm. You know, is there a preference, or you know, I'm, I'm talking about in the style and and the editing and the pacing. When I was younger, when I watched these things, I I I found that the visual storytelling of this was a little bit stronger in the dancing because you watch someone dance, you watch someone dance for long takes, and it's really extraordinary to see them achieve something because these are performers nowadays you get uh we spoke about la la land uh which is a wonderful example of a great dance when they're up on um uh griffith park up on the hill there with the sunset behind where you get to see a dance almost in its entirety the simplicity of it even i i'd um uh compare them to fight sequences fight sequences i love to see a fight i like to see the choreography breathe and and the framing allow us to see things rather than i think everything changed galley uh, especially in the modern musical after moulin rouge in uh 2000 2001 because it it became a bit more i i, I love that film anyway because it was spectacular and uh, really different and wowed me at the time but i think that was you know, a modern day musical um, came from that where with the dancing, you get more edits, you get more edits, you get, um, you don't let the, the dance breathe. And I think the older I've got, the more I appreciate a framing and a staging and a choreography that allows me to watch the craft happen rather than edit, 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 multiple camera, 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 uh, edit shot, you know, like the wide range that does cut well to music. Yes. When I watch something like this, the Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, um, I think, and Sound of Music when he's dancing with the umbrella, uh, the, these scenes stand out and will always pass the test of time because they are extraordinary pieces of work. They're extraordinary pieces of choreography, and they're cinematic. They are impressive, and you can watch them visually that way. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the comparison I had was, it's only because I recently watched it, was uh, The Greatest Showman, which I really enjoyed. I thought the music was uh, was wonderful, which is why all the songs are on the radio. Um, but the shooting style, it's very kinetic. And it's almost like the camera becomes uh, a part of the choreography. Um, therefore, the shots are, are very, very sort of deliberate. And the edits are very deliberate. And it ends up almost becoming a and this sounds like it's uh just quite disparaging and it doesn't mean to be um it just it feels a bit more like a music video um and you do lose that sense of watching a genuine dancer performer actually you know sh- display their craft um you know i know that hugh jackman is a great dancer so zach efron what and so zach efron and there are certain shots in that when they pull away and they actually have full profile shots where you get to see them be great dancers. Yeah. But then it will cut to a close-up. Then it will cut to... And, and these films, they never do that. So you're right. There is just there is just a... There uh, is a tendency with the modern time, films to yeah, do that a bit yeah. more. Yeah, of course, you've got to appeal to a modern audience. But um, yeah, there is a timeless element to uh, these films. And this particular Bond sequence, I mean, I think we've uh, mm-hmm. talked about it enough, but it... But when, but yeah, in The Great Showman, you know the, the dance when they're at the bar and they're negotiating rate? Yep, it's one of the, one of the best sequences. That's, that's my favourite sequence in the film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's largely because of that, because I think that's a bit more of a... It's more traditional. traditionally yeah. composed sequence. And I hadn't really... 
I haven't really considered that thought until we started speaking about it now. Do you think maybe some some films um, like this one and and some of the other ones you've spoken about, especially that kind of golden age forties and fifties stuff, um, where the story isn't isn't really the focus? Do you think that's the case that like a film like this considered a classic because of sequences like this and because of how impressive they are? Or do, or do you think that it is a, a combination of the, the spectacular and the story it's trying to tell? I actually do think, especially Sound of Music and this, I, I do think there's a combination. I, uh, I, I'd actually argue that Great Showman is, is a better film than what the story is because of the music and the, and the dance numbers, from my point of view. I don't know whether you enjoyed it or saw it differently, Gary. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I tend to think, Devlin, that the best musicals uh, have a very, very simplistic moral behind them. Uh, so I'm thinking of the ones that I really, really do enjoy. Like I say, Wizard of Oz. I didn't even mention it, but I, you know, Grease is great. Uh, the, the, but the music for me is normally the attraction. It's normally the blend of music, music, dance, and obviously story. I mean, that's what I go to watch films for. Uh, and in The Greatest Showman, uh, I don't know if you you thought this, Patrick. The story's pretty it's pretty weak, uh, especially because the Hugh Jackman's character pretty much gets what he wants within the first twenty minutes of the film, and the rest of it's just like a celebration of that. And yeah, then the, they the plot didn't really work. No, no. And then they had they had the music and the numbers do. But had I watched it as a, a traditional narrative with no music, I I wouldn't have enjoyed that film because it was pretty it was pretty bare thin. Mm-hmm. it's always going to be the songs i think that will hold hold up and the dance numbers themselves you know there's a reason why singing the rain's so revered it is because you know you, everyone can picture it even if you've never seen it you know him in the rain uh singing swinging off the lamppost it's it's it is part of that iconography after this era of musicals compared to I, I, there wasn't i can't think of any musicals in the Right now, I'm going to have to look at in the 80s, in the 90s. Can you think of any musicals? I, so there's there's one that I can think of in the 80s that I that I really love actually, which is um, Francis Ford Coppola's One from the Heart, which was um, I think way ahead of its time because it was much like something like La La Land. It was the idea of elevating the story of two relatively normal mm. people to kind of in, in the case of One from the Heart, kind of like lower working class um uh, las vegas residents and just the the small scale trials and tribulations of their relationship and to play that out in a an approximation of a gaudy musical but um and using all of the all of the the kind of wonderful artifice that you can use so everything was on a sound stage and everything had beautiful lighting and there were these uh sets where the walls were really gauzes and by playing with the lights, you could you could uh, see through the walls into the other parts of the house. Mm-hmm. It probably killed the musical for a while because Coppola ended up spending virtually all of his Apocalypse Now money and most of the remainder of his sanity on it. Um, so, but moving on, uh, there is one other song that I uh, wanted to talk talk about before I get to one that I had a real problem with. Sobbing, um, I... sobbing, sobbing. Yes, just before we get to the sobbing, it made me sob. Um, <laughs> The I do like I can't remember what the title of it is, but when they're chopping wood, 
uh, in oh, the snow. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a nice little track. I mean, it's not... Isn't it? Isn't it a reprise of the song she sings, When You're In Love? some polecat there uh, which i i think is another example of the choreography and the kind of cinematic style of dawn and on this as well but even more simplified it's is it one take and you know it, it, every inch of it's filled there's a lovely backdrop again and i think it's a really nice little number again uh driving the plot telling us that the boys are pining for the girls in the town that they've they, they um, uh, fallen in love with, should we say? Um, and it's a calm before a kind of storm, isn't it? Yeah, it's. Um, I really, I really quite like it. It's a, it's a nice tender song. Uh, it's got a weird lyric in um, the, the the lyric about a man oh, yeah. is not a man if he sleeps with sheep, which um, yeah. Yeah, it's quite playful and funny yeah. and a little bit. Uh, yeah, a little bit provocative for 1954, I think. But you can't, say, uh, can't make no lows to a herd of cows. Or, yeah. You can't make no vows, yeah. You can't marry a cow. <laughs> but now, Benjamin, Benjamin wants out, doesn't he? He wants out. He, he's seen the light and he's a bit bored at home and he wants to go. So what what is it that Adam brings their attention to, Gally? Well, well Millie has a conversation with Adam and says, listen, I've got... I'm worried about the guys. I think they're all going to leave the farm. And then Adam, in his wisdom, good old Adam, um, decides to uh, to take the book that Millie's been uh, been reading and she brought along with her, uh, along with the Bible. The book that Millie uh, has got is the Plutarch's Lives. The book tells the story of a a rape that occurred in the early history of Rome. It's an odd, odd story for which this film was adapted and then meta in the film would then inspire our main, well, one of our main characters. So, so Adam's idea is to basically go kidnap him, those sobbing, sobbing women. And it leads into, well, for me, it's the worst <laughs> song in the film. Uh, and it, it is down to, down to the lyrics. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's catchy as hell. That makes yeah. it worse. Tell you about them sobbing women who lived in the Roman days. It seems that they all went swimming while their men was off to graze. Well, a Roman troop was riding by and saw them in their meal my. So they took them all back home to dry. At least that's what Plutarch says. 
Oh, yes, them women was sobbing, 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 fit to be tied. Every muscle was throbbing, throbbing from that riotous ride. Seems they cried and kissed and kissed and cried all over that Roman countryside. So don't forget that when you're taking a bride, sobbing fit to be tied from that riotous ride. So then what happened? Gather on, I'll tell you. I, I think um, if I had to zero in on my on my favorite slash least favorite, um, it's they were acting sad, but secretly they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, aghast. I um, there's a lot of lyrics as well. God, <laughs> yeah, there really are. I had um, I've had lesser reactions at some of the most gratuitous violent <laughs> horror films than yeah, than no, this, I, this particular I, song. I would have to agree, honestly. But it shows that the brothers are still the, very the hand... uh, impressionable and haven't quite learned. And you know, they look up to Adam. So Adam doing this, I I wonder if there's part of Adam that is uh, he knows it's wrong, but I, I don't know. He's kind of half setting them up, and or maybe not. I think it's more he knows it's wrong, but just w- wants to sees it as a uh, as a solution to them. He doesn't want Benjamin to go, and he went and got a wife. So why can't they? If you're being fair to the uh, if you're being fair to the film, and we've already discussed it, and we've said that sort of Millie becomes the matriarch. Potentially, it's his play to mm-hmm. reestablish himself as the head of the family i that's me being quite fair um but it, it ends up becoming an excuse for a rip-roaring track yeah it's it's inexcusable <laughs> but the lyrics are just oh they're ridiculous i, I mean they're laughable um, like they are laughable aren't they it's uh it's one of those it, it was at this point that i started to think that this was quite bizarre that this is um this is f- like f- wholesome family entertainment <laughs> and and it's, it's it's if you were to remove the jaunty music um it's it's terrifying this and the scene that they go through with next is is kind of uh, uh kind of horrifying i do think it's supposed to be like stanley donan was a school of the vaudevillian and i think he's trying to get some humor in it as well, especially when we come to the next sequence where they ride into town and essentially they Papa Lazarou all the women. You're my wife now, Dave. Yeah. And they <laughs> they just kidnap the women. You know, you've got Gideon on Ill Fours crying uh, as a oh cat my God, at the back door. That is which disturbing. is creepy, but it's I think it's supposed to be comedic at the time as well. But it is disturbing. It is, I think. I think there's a contextual thing here as well. I think um I think I do genuinely think this is supposed to be more comedic at the time, but now times are changing. It is weird, isn't it? It is bad. Yeah. But there's the guy. There's the guy. The townsfolk chap who's kissing, about to kiss one of the girls, and then doesn't he? One of them knock him out, take his place, steals a kiss, and then steals yeah. the girl. Oh, it's it's dark. Thank <laughs> God, it's dark. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's that juxtaposition that makes this so jarring. Is that we are in this fun, frivolous, popcorn, fantasy escapism musical, and then all of a sudden, 
they are they are literally putting these women in bags and uh, and rounding up like cattle and it is it is weird and it just yeah i i, I didn't see i didn't see it going there Honestly, when I watched this, I didn't think we were coming to this. There was just so much <laughs> screaming as well. Like, oh, there's so it much was, screaming. it was, it was re- it, it, it didn't stop being horrifying, and the jaunty music was not helping. It just felt like, uh, like no, just bizarre. also. Why was that the only two books that she owns? The Bible and a story about a mass kidnapping. Well, the story is, you know, that's plot driven. And then the Bible, I think there are religious connotations in the, throughout the film. Um, we, we'll come to it a little bit later where the literal spring springs new life with the baby. And you can see the weather's changed and green comes out, which is, um, you know, I think that has religious connotations as well as the, there's the, the priest and the belief in marriage with, uh, you know, uh, not to have a child out of wedlock that there's those kind of things that are again contextual oh yeah there's there's fundamental conservative christian values uh peppered yeah. throughout especially yeah, yeah, yeah. near the end uh and and even even adam and millie's courtship uh feels somewhat like a almost we're into arranged marriage territory bit, you know the yeah. whole i know it's uh wrapped around the conceit of uh love at first sight but he basically just says you marriage <laughs> now we we did set this up when he first brings millie to the farm it says to be quiet because we can cause an avalanche up the pass so don't they restrain the girls as they go through but when they hit the pass does he say like let them loose or something there's an avalanche and now they're essentially snowed in and they've well, kind of taking them to be imprisoned by that way because the townsfolk and they're, they've taken them away from their family and everything. So that's uh, it is a dark and shocking scene. But Millie is pissed off and won't let them in the house. It banishes them to the barn now. And is yep. this where Adam goes off in a strop up the mountain? He does. He disappears from the film. He does, yeah. Like a petulant child. He wants to go and hang out with the wolves. Yeah, he, he takes stage left. <laughs> right, so I mentioned uh, one one bit of uh, framing and staging that I didn't like earlier in, this, uh, in the film with Millie and the, the brothers. Here's my next I've got a bit of a problem with. And I understand, again, it's a musical and they're kind of going through this story quite quickly. So there is a there is a passage of time done through a slow fade edit, but it's not quite enough. We literally go from kidnapped, terrified, horrified to next scene. We're throwing snowballs and uh, it's all like, oh, I, I think I love them. There's a specific scene that we were missing and it wouldn't have been that difficult to put it in, which is that because you see the, the brothers come begging up to the house for attention from the girls and you see the girls kind of. Uh, in a there's this, um, a scene with them all in the in the boys' bedroom, kind of talking about the men. So the sort oh, of, yeah, imagine if this just, is his bed. Like, yeah, you just needed one scene whereby they cleverly brought back the lessons that they'd learned earlier from uh, from Millie and started acting like proper gentlemen, and then you know then you've got like a closed narrative. But they didn't. They just kind of begged their way into the house, and then a transition happened, and it was spring, and they're all running around cuddling lambs and stuff. <laughs> it does. It does 
pretty much ramp up when when we know that Millie's pregnant. Those nine months just fly by. And is it Gideon that goes up to Adam to tell him that listen, you've got a, a daughter? And I think you were you alluded to it earlier, Devlin. It's such a dickhead move. He's like, ugh, typical a girl. <laughs> <laughs> I really do hate yeah. Adam. So we're very much. we're very late in the film for for our. Um... I don't know. Well, as you said, I, I don't think he's he's technically our lead character. I would imagine she's now our lead character, but he's certainly the first character we saw, and he's, you know, the, mm-hmm. the a major part of the the narrative and the fact that he just sort of saunters out of it angrily and then continuing to be a dick this late in the film. It's a it's a long way to go for a redemption arc because mm. his redemption is extremely late. Uh, so then what happens is, I mean, like you say, we are we are now like basically in the last few minutes of the film. Uh, the townsfolk, are, uh, the snow has melted. Um, and I think the girls, do they attempt an escape because the snow's uh, no, melted? No, their, their escape actually comes when they know that their families are coming back to them. And they try and hide. Oh, that's right. Because they want to stay. And, they want to stay with the boys. That. With the pantopies. yeah. And, well, who wouldn't? And uh, <laughs> and so yeah, the townsfolk come uh, come into the or try and sort of siege into the farm. But they're they're, they're hell bent on killing them and lynching them, aren't they? Really? It's a it's a lynch mob, isn't it? And this is where yeah. you mentioned it before, Patrick, about uh, sort of Christian values. It's a real again. This feels proper nineteen fifties, almost like blue velvet. You know, we don't talk about the dark mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, when the reverend uh, hears. Uh, the, the baby, baby crying. crying and he's like oh no yeah. oh no not that <laughs> that's all we need to know yeah just not that well, well the boys are supposed to have made a turn here aren't they and having to decided that they should go back to their families and they're trying to force them to go back now so there's a oh yeah everyone everyone keeps flipping around so the girls are suddenly desperate to stay and the and the brothers are suddenly desperate to do the right thing and send them back to their families and then adam turns up and doesn't he kind of say both things i can't even remember adam, adam comes back and says we've got to take the girls back to the family and the boy the brothers agree but the girls don't want to but of course they're caught manhandling the girls aren't they by their families when they come up the pass so it doesn't look good for them yeah, the baby's the baby's uh, crying, and then the lynch mob have cornered uh, the brothers and the girls, so everyone's in in the one location. And then the reverend just says, "Girls, you can be honest. Whose baby is this?" And then it is a punchline and a setup to a gag, and they all just go, "Mine." Mine. And yeah, followed they on is would... a very very yeah. happy ending. And I still do think the tongue in cheek does remain throughout that finale as well the end basically yeah. isn't it i mean it's it does it does wrap up very very quickly but you know we've mentioned it once and i'll mention it one more time because i really do uh, <laughs> have a problem with adam he he his oh, yeah. lesson learned is that uh, when he comes back is to say you know what i've got a daughter now and the thought of uh, someone coming in and kidnapping my daughter Make, makes me think, you know, I probably did wrong. <laughs> this, yeah, and that is his lesson. That does there. seem to be like a, that's quite a common thing, isn't it? Where um, you you hear a lot of um, sort of guys, like very kind of manly dudes on social media or whatever, suddenly saying like, as a father to daughters, I find this offensive. It's like, wait, so you didn't find it offensive <laughs> before? 
<laughs> but now that it affects you personally <laughs> because you have a female child, now all of a sudden you've got you've you've grown some moral fiber. It's worth mentioning that uh, just because of his belligerence and how pissed off he is with, with, with Millie and you know storming off because he's a child. When Gideon does tell him he's got a baby, he does think it's a trick, doesn't he, to to lure him back? But I, I wonder if he says that because he does wish he'd have a child. It's something new and. You know that they do do the when you're in love kind of bit again, and we are reminded that they are supposed to be in love. I don't know whether it, it doesn't sound like you buy that. I'm just not sure that the amount of time that they spent together on screen and the chemistry that they have together on screen was enough to sustain throughout how much of a dick he was throughout. There are films whereby you can you know you can you can glaze over it by its you know if it's barreled over with with enough kind of charm and, and and stuff and i know that patrick you said that the guys are a real presence which is true but yeah he's mm-hmm. still a dick just to go back to calamity jane he, the character arc in there they definitely build up a relationship more and more believably because you see them warming to each other and i do i do mm. get that uh of these two but I, I don't know how to defend this one just uh it's contextual Right, guys, uh, I guess that leads us to uh, to ask the important questions. Mm-hmm. So, Patrick, uh, does Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, does it hold up? And would you recommend it for our listeners? Hell yeah. I think you got that anyway. I've, I've been quite positive about this. But I, I have really fond memories of this. I have fond memories of singing the songs with my grandma and how catchy they are. Obviously, back then, I didn't fully appreciate what the lyrics meant. But uh, certainly melody and as a visual piece of art, this is fantastic. And I think it's really, I wanted you guys to watch it to look back on something that, I don't, you know, we haven't gone this far back. And this is the golden era of cinema. And I think this is a really important time to learn where these influences come from. Like you said, uh, Dublin, La La Land, the sequences in there, I don't think we'd have specifically without Dawn and... Uh, or Michael Kidd and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, because I think this thing's taken from it. And I, I do think this is a wonderful film, and it's really good fun for me. And it's, um, it's I haven't seen it in a few years, so it's been very interesting to look at it back now with uh, considering the chauvinism in it and um, both their places in and, and the, the kind of narrative towards... Um, about his attitude and how he treats her and that he is a bit of a dick, but of course, uh, yeah, I highly recommend this. Um, Devlin, yourself, someone who's not majorly accustomed to musicals and were shocked by this. (laughs) Um, It's, it's probably not the most surprising that I would say that, um, (laughs) <laughs> just just for me if if you're asking just me personally whether i would recommend people to watch this um it it didn't really work for me um not i mean not being a big fan of of the entire art form is definitely a hindrance uh i i would say that having seen uh stanley dornan's uh singing in the rain and this um i feel like if you're not accustomed to musicals, as I'm not, 
uh, I, I found uh, Singing in the Rain to be uh, more kind of more charming, more witty. Um, and that that charm carries it a long way as well as the the kind of spectacular dance sequences and the and the songs and how catchy it is and i i, I find it very um uh just really kind of uplifting whereas this one uh just couldn't get past all the kidnapping to be honest <laughs> <laughs> you're my wife now <laughs> and and yeah just i i there, there was, there was, there was moments. Um, uh, I really, um, I really did like the performance of uh, uh, of Gideon, of uh, um, Russ Tamblin. I thought he was a uh, a very different. Um, he brought a different note to the film, and I have shortchanged uh, the performance of of the actress who played Millie as well. She was very, um, yeah, you know, she she really held the screen. Uh, there's there's some nice stuff in there. The the barn sequence is is pretty impressive, especially the second part of it where it becomes a a kind of classic Hollywood um that vaudevillian physical comedy set piece. Um you see, you know, really great uh stunt workers and dancers at the same time. It's 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 pretty impressive. So there's there's moments. I don't know, maybe just um Maybe just YouTube that scene. How about you, girls? I wasn't keen on the on the central premise of the film, and I really, really did dislike uh, Howard Keel's character, Adam. Not Howard Keel himself, but Adam. Um, I could do without. Um, I think it might have been the whimsical, fluffy nature of the film, which only served to highlight uh, those problematic issues uh, within the story. Um, but despite this, I think the choreography, I think the music and the direction are all fantastic. Uh, I think Dornan gives the dancers uh, a platform to perform. Um, it isn't obtrusive or flashy with the camera setups. And, he, you know, he chooses rather to compose like these lush, wide, long takes of the action, which I liked. Uh, I think the film itself, um, oddly, was really old fashioned. Um, it didn't doesn't really have the quality that Singing in the Rain has. Um, perhaps it's the absence of a Gene Kelly, um, but I, I appreciated watching critically a film in a period which I'm not really that familiar. I won't recommend Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. However, I do recommend that people check out that barn raising scene in isolation uh, if they if they don't enjoy or like the review we've given, because uh, I think it is truly spectacular. What I will say, Patrick, is I definitely appreciated uh, reviewing something that that was out of our wheelhouse. Well, I, did, I didn't want to choose Singing in the Rain, which was on my radar, because I thought you'd be more familiar with that. I wanted to choose something um, that was big for me and a personal favourite of mine growing up that I, I didn't think you'd know. No, I, 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 I was thinking exactly the same. Like, it was, um, you know, I feel like this is completely justified. I made you sit through demons. <laughs> so uh i ended up I, I watched this on uh youtube you can rent it on youtube and i think you can rent it from google play i think that's the only two places it's really available though it was quite cheap uh dvd on ebay as well it was quite a couple of pounds there i picked up a copy at uh hmv um oh, nice. it, as part of their classic collection it oh, was nice. only five pounds so if you do cool. want to if you do want to seek out the film then there are plenty of avenues to uh, to pick it up. Yeah, yeah, and make sure you don't end up with the uh, the 1982 CBS TV series, which starred MacGyver himself, Richard Dean Anderson, <laughs> and a young yeah, yeah. River Phoenix. Apparently, oh wow, okay. Well, 
you go. I didn't know he did that. Yeah, this is 1954. Oh, so it's your turn now, Gunny, is it? It is, yes. It is my uh, my choice for a throwback. And What are um, you going to put us through? So I've gone for something that's quite popular. I'd imagine that everybody has seen this film, but it's uh, it's an important one for me. Um, it's informed some of my life choices, and uh, it's also a film that I just am really looking forward to discussing with you guys. Uh, we are going to watch Top Gun next on, oh, the, hey. on the show. Top off. Yeah, so, well, yeah, exactly, top, exactly. Top. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so throwing, throwing, uh, some, throwing some some Glasgow uh, Glasgow slang for Gally. He is. You yes, feeling homoerotic then, Gally? Uh, I, I think we've. Um, I think it's time that we we yeah did a course correction and and it's time to do a manly man's film about men. So uh, so yeah we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do Top Gun. So I'm looking forward to it and it's the first Tom Cruise film that we've done. Uh, looking forward to getting into it on the on the next episode. So that'll leave us to say our goodbyes. Um, our outro song is Rednecks Cotton Eye Joe. So if you've ever been to a primary school disco, you'll know this track. Uh, that'll only leave us to put our ass chaps on, chew some tobacco, slap our thighs, and dance in line. It's a barn dance, gentlemen. It's Gally in Glasgow signing out. And it's Devin in London. Lovely to chat to you guys. And Patrick in London as well. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much, guys. And we'll see you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. <laughs>